Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live at our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, Streamwood, or Huntley. Or check out a service online. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, I woke up the other day with a sore arm, which caused me to wonder, where did that come from? You ever have that happen to you? You know, did I work out too hard the day before? Is it all that leaf raking I've been doing for the last couple of weeks? Is it, you know, did I just sleep on it wrong? And then it dawned on me, my six-year-old grandson's birthday party. So one of the gifts that he got, he got those little green uh, plastic army men that are attached to parachutes. Remember those? Okay, I had those when I was a kid. And you, you bundle up, you wad up the parachute, and you throw it up in the air, and the dude comes floating down. And I wanted to show my grandson just how high I could throw that dude. And then it got to be a competition with my grown son, who was also there, to see whose army man could stay the longest in the air. And I think I overdid it. <laughs> But you know how, how it goes. My, my grandson initially was cheering us on. He was all excited about this new gift that he, he'd gotten. But he quickly lost interest and went to play on the trampoline. Uh, my son and I were still throwing army men in, into the air. Have you ever noticed how quickly a child loses interest in a new gift? I mean, they open it up and they are so excited, but they quickly abandon it and they move on to something else. Or worse, they break the new toy. I can remember a couple of Christmases ago, uh, my grandson got a remote control car, and so we took it over to the gym at the St. Charles campus because uh, there was nobody here, and we could race it around, and it crashed into something, and that was the end of it. Oh, what a sad day that was. Okay, m most of the gifts that we get in this life, even as adults, provide temporary happiness at best. But, but the Bible tells us that God loves to give us gifts, good gifts, perfect gifts, the best gifts, the kinds of gifts that produce lasting joy. I want you to take a look at a verse, kind of be going to be our theme verse today, uh, James chapter 1, verse 17. We'll put it on the, on the screen. I'd like to invite all of you at our five campuses and those watching online to read this verse out loud with me. Here we go. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. James says that God gives us good and perfect gifts. Now, one of those gifts is sexuality. So today is the final installment in a four-part series uh, we've been calling Sexual Wholeness in a Broken World. I want you to turn to James 1 if you brought a Bible with you uh, because this is going to be our passage for today. Uh, even though our sexuality is one of God's good and perfect gifts, the fact that we are living in a fallen, broken world means that our experience of sexuality is often not what God intended to be. It ends up getting distorted, uh, or we're disappointed, or we're hurt by it. And, and the problem is not just the big bad world around us that's wrecking this gift of sexuality. Uh, the problem is that we ourselves, every one of us, has contributed to this brokenness. You know, we're constantly tempted to misuse the gift. 
God has designed us, we learned this the first week of this series, God has designed us to engage in sex only within the context of a committed marriage relationship. Remember what I said about this, the analogy, sex is the super glue that bonds a husband and a wife together. And it's not just a physical bond, it's an emotional bond, a psychological bond, a spiritual bond. So today we're going to talk about the misuse of this gift of of sexuality. See, when we participate in sex outside of a marriage commitment, whether that is, you know, with somebody we're dating or it's an adulterous relationship or we're engaging in virtual sex porn or we're fantasizing about somebody at work, God's good and perfect gift does not provide the lasting happiness that God intended. Now, a moment ago, we read uh, verse 17 of James chapter 1 together. But if you've got the passage open in front of you, I want you to see the context for this verse. Uh, I'm going to go back and pick up the paragraph before verse 17. So from verse 14 on, you could follow along in your Bible or see the, uh, the words up on the screen. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Now, here's where we're going to go with this passage today. Uh, I want to outline for you a four-step downward spiral process that destroys this gift of sexuality in our lives. And then I want to give you a handful of applications that will safeguard this gift so that your experience of it will bring lasting happiness, which is what God intends. So let's start with the four-step downward spiral. I'm going to give it to you in a sentence, and then we're going to break it down into four component parts. So here's the sentence. When greedy desires encounter a vulnerable condition, they produce sinful actions that lead to death. Let me say that one more time. When greedy desires encounter a vulnerable condition, they produce sinful actions that lead to death. So, step number one in this downward progression, when greedy desires. So, if your Bible's still open to the passage we read, let me review verse 14, the first verse. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, it's interesting, the word uh, desire here, you're going to want to circle, if you've got your own Bible, circle the expression evil desire. The word desire here is actually a neutral word in scripture. Okay, when you read the Bible, desires can be good desires or they can be bad desires and it's the context that tells us which it is. Okay, in, in verse 14 here, the word evil does not appear in the original Greek text of verse 14. It's not needed because the the context tells us that James is talking about evil desires, which is why the English translators have inserted the word evil. But our desires can be evil. They can be good. You know, King David says in Psalm 34, verse 7, he says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
So if you're taking delight in the Lord, okay, if God is the center of your life, then he knows he can trust you by giving you things your heart desires. Uh, On the other hand, our desires can be evil. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 verse 11, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. So Peter tells us we can desire things that aren't good for us, things that are self-destructive, things that are going to wage war against our souls. Now sometimes those, those evil desires, they can look good on the surface. You know, which is why James says here in verse 14, uh, watch out for those evil desires because they will entice you and drag you away. Two expressions that were commonly used by fishermen in the first century. Entice, you know, was a term that referred to the bait, the juicy bait you put on the hook to attract the fish. Okay, but there was a deadly hook underneath that juicy good-looking bait. And, and when the hook was set, then the fish would be dragged away. So sex outside of marriage, good desire or evil desire, God's word says evil desire, don't let it entice you, don't let it bait you, set the hook and drag you away. Now here's something else I want you you to note about this expression that I had you circle, evil desire in verse 14. Evil desires are greedy. In fact, if you're you're marking up your Bible, just put that word greedy in in the margin. Evil desires are never satisfied. Evil desires always leave us wanting more, more, more. They're kind of like Turkish delight in the opening book of the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember that bratty kid, Edmund, who gets sucked in by the wicked white witch because she gives him some Turkish delight. And once you start eating Turkish delight, you can't stop. And so he becomes a slave to Turkish delight and he does whatever the wicked white witch asks him to do, even even to the the point of betraying his brother and sisters. See, evil desires are, are greedy, which is why Jesus warns us in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. All kinds of greed comes in various shapes and sizes. We can be greedy for material possessions, but we can also be greedy for popularity. We can be greedy for success and achievement. We can be greedy for fun and excitement, entertainment. We always got to have more, more, more. And we can be greedy. We can be greedy for sex. In fact, it's interesting to note that the Bible often couples sexual immorality with greed in Scripture. You know, I could take you to half a dozen places where, where, where we could see this. Let me give you just one example. Ephesians 5, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. So sexual immorality and greed, they, they, they go together. You say, well, how so? Let me, let me illustrate. Let's say you're a married person and you're not satisfied with the amount of sex that you're getting in your marriage. And so somebody at work starts looking really attractive and before long this has become an adulterous relationship that was birthed in greed. You wanted more. Or let's say you got a dating relationship and you're thinking, well, this is a great friendship but I sure would like to have some sex as part of it. And because of the greed, the desire for something that's supposed to be off limits, 
You you transgress God's word in this regard. Motivated by greed. You know, what is it that drives us to porn? It's a greed for all those beautiful bodies we're, we're looking at, tempting us to engage in virtual sex and masturbation. Beware of greedy desires. You get it? Good. Which leads to step number two. When greedy desires encounter a vulnerable condition. Let's go back to James chapter one. We're finished with verse 14, but take a look at the opening line of verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Stop right there. Evil desires have a tendency, James says, to conceive. What does he mean, conceive? Well, James is using an expression from the world of biological reproduction. Now, we all know from freshman biology that when a male sperm encounters a female egg, a baby is conceived. But James isn't talking about babies here. He's talking about being tempted with with greedy desires. Those desires by themselves may go nowhere. I mean, we may be able with God's help to resist them. But those greedy desires have the potential to conceive something sinful. How do they do that? I mean, who's the partner with whom greedy desires conceive? James doesn't tell us in this passage, but the answer can be found throughout the pages of Scripture. See, greedy desires are always on the lookout for a vulnerable condition with which to partner. Let me say that again. Greedy desires have the potential to conceive something sinful. They're always on the lookout for a vulnerable condition with which to partner. What do I mean by a a vulnerable condition? Let me give you some examples. This isn't meant to be a, a complete list. It's just to get you thinking about vulnerable conditions in your own life. Okay, first one that comes to my mind is anger. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, that when we nurse anger in our lives, when we're angry and we're hanging on to it, the devil gets a foothold, Paul says. So you stay angry for a while and Satan kicks the door open and now that the door is propped open, all sorts of garbage can come in, like sexual immorality. Let me illustrate how this works. Okay, your, your wife says to you for the third time, she said, hey, you promised to hang up the outside Christmas lights today. And you remind her for the third time that I haven't had the time to do that. And so she says to you, but you had the time to watch the football game. So you go outside and you hang up the dang Christmas lights. But you are doing a slow burn the whole time. And the rest of the day, you barely talk to each other. And when she goes to sleep, you get up and go to the den and you pull out your laptop and you fire up some porn sites. Because you want to look at some... Beautiful naked women who demand nothing from you. They're not telling you anything about Christmas lights. You see how that works? Anger opens the door. Or or let's say, if I could speak to some of the young adults here, let's say that your parents are not too crazy about the boy that you're dating, and so you get into this huge knock down, drag out argument about him just before he comes to pick you up on a date. So now you go out, 
And you find yourself strangely tempted to do things physically that you hadn't intended to do. Why? Because you're really angry at mom and dad. You see how that works? Okay, anger is that vulnerable condition. When greedy desires encounter a vulnerable condition, watch out. Let me give you another example of a different vulnerable condition, self-pity. You know, isn't life sucky? Poor me, my boss hasn't given me the, the raise I deserve. My friends are posting stuff on Instagram of places they're vacationing and I'm stuck at home. You know, my, my dog, my 15-year-old dog just had to be put down. Uh, I, I was striving for an A in English, and I thought I'd done the work. I just, you know, worked my tail off to get it, and I got a B instead. Self-pity, poor me. You're in a vulnerable condition. You know, th this happened to God's people in Old Testament times, just after they had been delivered from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And they were thinking, poor us. We've been nothing but slaves. You know, it's time for some fun. It's time for some gratification. It's time for some pleasure in our lives. It's time for something that will help us forget Egypt. We deserve something better. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament recaps what happened next. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 7 and 8. So the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And then Paul adds, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. See, when greedy desires encounter a vulnerable condition like self-pity, oh, well, what might that look like for you? You know, maybe you're a single female who's waiting for a guy to take an interest in you, somebody to ask you out. It hasn't happened to you. It's happening to all your friends, but not to you. So you indulge in some sleazy romantic movie or novel, or you fantasize about some dude at work, or you find yourself suddenly attracted to a girlfriend in a sexual way. See, when your life is difficult for whatever reason, beware of self-pity. Beware of self-pity because greedy desires encounter a vulnerable condition and then no telling what's going to happen. What, what other vulnerable conditions are potentially dangerous? Boredom. You know, I think of David and Bathsheba. You know, David is the general. He's the head of his army, but his army's out fighting and David's staying at home with nothing to do. He's just chilling. He's walking around his palace. One night he's strolling across the uh, rooftop patio and happens to look next door and sees a beautiful neighbor lady bathing and it's all over. Okay. Boredom. Boredom, like when you're sitting at home with nothing to do, so you turn on the TV and you go to Netflix, and there's some good stuff, but there's a lot of trash, and you pick something that's going to be sensual, that's going to be sexually exciting because... You're bored. You're bored. Self-pity, anger, self-pity, boredom. How about fear? Fear is a vulnerable condition. Did you know that the command fear not appears 365 times in the Bible? I didn't count them, but somebody did, and I'm going to take their word for it. 365 times don't fear. So if you're afraid... 
You know, maybe you're afraid that if you don't move in with your, your, your boyfriend, you might lose him. You know, maybe you're afraid that if you don't look at the, you know, the phone porn that the guys are passing around the locker room, they're going to mock you. Right, what's wrong with you? Maybe you're afraid that as you age, you're losing your sex appeal and you're wondering if you still have the ability to turn ahead. See, fear is a vulnerable condition. So is exhaustion. So is loneliness. So is sexual abuse in your past. By the way, don't forget, Pastor Clayton has done an interview uh, with a, a group of experts on this topic of sexual abuse, and it's going to be posted as we conclude this series. You can find it online. It's kind of an addendum topic for this series. There, there are a wide variety of vulnerable conditions in which we might find ourselves. And when greedy desires encounter a vulnerable condition, it's like putting a match to dry tinder. Which leads to step number three. They produce sinful actions. Let me reread the first half of James chapter 1, verse 15 to you. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, James is talking about sinful actions here, but sinful actions begin with sinful thoughts, and sinful thoughts are the result of not immediately resisting temptation. Temptation itself is not sinful, but it is sinful to dwell on temptation in our minds. Uh, Martin Luther, I've always loved his picture in this regard. Uh, he says, you can't keep the birds from flying overhead, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair, assuming you've got hair. Yes. You follow what he's saying? You, you can't keep temptations from coming your way, but you can keep them from taking roost. You can keep them from setting up a home in your heart and mind. You can keep them, you know, from giving birth, as James says in verse 15 here, to sinful actions. You know, the, the Apostle Paul says the same thing, but instead of using a birthing, giving birth to sinful actions, a birthing metaphor, Paul uses a farming metaphor. Galatians 6, verse 7. He says, don't be deceived, a man reaps what he sows. You've heard that before. You reap what you sow. If you sow the seeds of sinful sexual thoughts in your mind, you will eventually reap a harvest of sinful sexual actions. You know, let me give you a very common, popular example of this. Okay, a couple of years ago, 2019, a survey was taken among young Christ followers. So we're talking young people in the ages 15 to 22. And a majority of those young adults said that premarital sex is wrong. So evidently, they knew their Bibles. However, 43% of those same professing Christ followers, almost half, indicated that they would definitely or probably cohabit at some time in the future. They would live with somebody they're not married to. So are you following this? Okay, so they, they know that sexual immorality is wrong, but they are thinking that they'll probably engage in it, and you know what? They probably will. Because sinful thoughts lead to sinful actions. And, you know, here's the crazy thing about this example I just used. Studies actually show that couples who lived together before marriage divorce at a much, much higher rate, even among Christ followers. 
So cohabiting is not only sinful, it's not the smartest thing you could do either. So how do researchers explain the high rate of divorce among those whose relationships began with cohabiting? Well, stop and think about it for a moment. What, what seeds are sown when you cohabit with someone you're not married to? Okay, minimal, the seed of minimal commitment. We could get out of this anytime we want. You know, you, you, you've got the seed of blatant, flagrant, disobedience to God. I know what he says, but I'm not going to do it. You've got the seed of immediate gratification. We're not going to wait for sex. We're going to do it now. So, Friend, when you sow those kinds of seeds, what do you hope to reap down the road? Okay, don't be deceived, Paul says. You're going to reap what you sow. When greedy desires encounter a vulnerable condition, they produce sinful actions. Let me ask you a probing question. What sinful sexual actions are you currently engaged in? You know that they're wrong. You know God's word says they're wrong. But you're doing them anyway. You're regularly viewing porn. Or you're going too far with the person you're dating or you're feeding same-sex attractions, or you're flirting to the point of fantasizing about somebody other than your spouse, and maybe you've convinced yourself, this isn't a big deal. You know, these are small sinful sexual thoughts and actions. Really small. Go back to verse 15 one more time. After desire has conceived, James says, it gives birth to sin. Now listen, and when sin, when it is full grown, stop right there. When sin is full grown, in other words, these small sexual indiscretions that we engage in, they grow up. They get bigger and bigger over time until finally they become controlling sinful thoughts and actions, addictive sinful sexual actions, which leads to step number four, that lead to death, that lead to death. Look at the closing line of verse 15, and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Interesting turn of phrase there, isn't it? Gives birth to death. And what kind of death is James talking about? Is he talking about physical death here? Well, I suppose in extreme cases, you know, certain sexual actions, sexual immorality could lead to physical death, whether it's STDs or I'll tell you a story from my, from my childhood. My, my best buddy growing up was a dude named Gary. And Gary and I, we were blood brothers. Remember when you used to do that? You cut your finger with a pocket knife and you put your fingers together. People don't do that these days, do they? And uh, so Gary and I, we were blood brothers. We, grew up, we went to high school together. Gary professed to be a Christ follower, but I knew he was sleeping with the girls he was dating. And so we get done with high school, and I go to college, and Gary starts a, a, a construction business, and he's remodeling the home of a young couple and be begins a flirtatious relationship with the wife, a small sexual sin that grows into a full-blown affair. And one day this woman's husband comes home unexpectedly, sees Gary in bed with his wife, pulls out a gun and shoots him dead. 
It was a surreal experience to go to my best buddy's funeral. So it happens, physical death. Okay, but there are many other ways, friends, that sexual immorality causes us to die. Okay, our freedom dies. When, when, when we make a habit of a sexual sin, we become a slave to it. That's what Jesus says in John 8, verse 34. He, he said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And his listeners said, oh, we're not slaves to anybody. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, if you continue in a pattern of sin, you're a slave to that sin. You've lost, your freedom has died. Okay, conscience dies. You know, as we engage in sexual sins, initially, if you're a Christ follower, oh, you feel bad, you feel guilty, oh God, I'll never do that again. But as you do it repeatedly, your conscience gets seared over time. You know, I would dare say there are people who are listening to me right now who your, your conscience is on its way to death and the, you know, the tip-off is the fact that your inner lawyer has been arguing with everything I've said so far. You've made rationalizations as to why you continue doing what you're doing and so on. What else dies? Usefulness dies. The apostle Paul told his young friend Timothy to flee from sexual sin because, Paul says, and you could look this up yourself, it's 2 Timothy 2, verses 21 and 22. He says, Paul, uh, God, God Paul says God isn't gonna use the person who's sexually immoral. The analogy he uses is he says it's like an unclean vessel. You know, God's not gonna take a drink out of a dirty cup. So if you want a life that is filled with a sense of God-given purpose, please understand that your sexual sins are gonna kill your usefulness. Relationships die. Listen, guys, if you're married and you are nursing a porn habit, Okay, your intimacy with your wife, whether she knows about the porn or not, your intimacy is getting killed. If you're a single guy and you're sleeping with your girlfriend because you think it enhances the relationship, oh my goodness, there are so many aspects of the relationship of a really good, solid friendship that are dying because they're getting eclipsed by the sexual part. And of course, the worst death of all when we continue in our sexual sins is that our friendship with Christ dies. You know, Jesus says in John 15, verse 14, you are my friends if, you are my friends if you do what I command. So if we're polluting our minds with sexual thoughts, whether it's porn or runaway fantasies or a steady stream of garbage on Netflix, if we're engaging in sexual behaviors, anything outside of a marriage relationship, our friendship with Christ is barely breathing. Now, you may have convinced yourself otherwise. You, you may be saying, well, that's not true. I've got a virile relationship with Jesus, but not according to Jesus. If you want to be my friend, Jesus says, you need to walk in obedience to me. So when greedy desires encounter a vulnerable condition, they produce sinful actions that lead to death. Is that what you want? I don't think so. I don't think that's, that's what any of us want. So how can we turn this around? I need a whole nother sermon to answer that question. And I've got like five minutes left. 
So let me give you four quick applications that will equip you to walk in sexual wholeness, that will equip you to live the abundant life that Jesus promises those who walk with him. First application, regularly examine your heart. Regularly examine your heart. Sexual sins are not conquered merely by trying to control our external behavior. We've all been there. We've tried that. It's kind of like trying to keep a beach ball underwater. You know, you'll hold it down for a, a moment and then it'll resurface someplace else. You know, sexual sins can't be controlled externally because they begin in the heart. And that, that's why David prays in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. God, search my heart. You know, this is something we should do every day, especially in those moments of the day when we're feeling the tug of sexual temptation. We need to ask ourselves the question, what's going on in my heart right now? Okay, when, when I feel the tug of a sexual temptation, that is my go-to question. Jim, what is going on in your heart right now? Because greedy desires are encountering a vulnerable condition. Okay, is the condition anger? Am I angry about something? Is it self-pity? Is it fearfulness? Is it boredom? Is it loneliness? What is it? Examine your heart. Application number two, confess your sins and the sins behind your sins. So your sexual sins, they're going to be obvious to you. Confess them to God. But what is the sin behind each sexual sin? I mean, maybe the sin behind your porn is your anger with your, your spouse. And you're not dealing with that. And until you deal with that, porn is going to continue to be an issue, continue to be a temptation. Okay, maybe the reason that you're sleeping with your boyfriend, which is sinful, the sin behind the sin is that you need his approval more than you need God's, you think. So you confess the sin behind the sin. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, you know, this ought to be a practice of every genuine Christ follower. If we claim to be without sin, John writes, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let me stop there. So if you've been going through this sexual wholeness series saying, well, I'm glad they're doing this series for other people who need it, but I don't. <laughs> John says, get a life. You know, we're deceiving ourselves. If we think that we're not tempted in these areas, that we're not guilty on occasion of these sins, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we confess our sins and the sins behind our sins. Now, two side notes here, really important. First, okay, don't bother to confess your sins if you have no intention of seeking God's help to forsake those sins. Because confession is the first step back onto the path of righteousness. And if you have no intention to walk on the path of righteousness, you plan to continue on the path of sin, then save your breath because God's not fooled by your phony confession. It's got, got to come from the heart. God, I really want your help. I not only want to be forgiven, I want to be changed. The, the, the second side note I would say about confession, especially with regard to sexual sins, is it's often helpful to find a trusted friend in whose presence you can confess this sin. 
You know, someone who will then pray for you, someone who will hold you accountable, someone who will check up on you. That could be a pastor on staff at Christ Community Church. It may be your community group leader. It may be some kind of spiritual mentor in your life. James 5 verse 16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So find somebody you can trust and let them share and pray for you. Third application, enjoy God's good gifts. Enjoy God's good gifts. Go back to James chapter 1. This is where we began the sermon, recognizing that God is the ultimate giver of good gifts. And God's gifts, they are perfect. They, they, they bring lasting happiness. So don't settle for the sexual gifts that don't come from God's hand. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Deceived by what? Deceived by these false gifts. See, every good and perfect gift, James goes on to say, is from above. It comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. I love what C.S. Lewis writes in this regard. You've probably heard this quote before. Lewis says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. See, don't keep making sexual mud pies in a slum because God wants, wants you to have a holiday at sea. You know, God wants to fill your life with good and perfect gifts, with the gift of salvation with the gift of life purpose, with the gift of meaningful relationships, with the, the gift of an intimate walk with him, with the gift of answered prayer, on and on the list of gifts goes. Fourth application, uh, utilize resources and safeguards in an accountability partner. So utilize resources. Okay, two weeks ago, we did a sexual wholeness panel on Sunday night. And I brought in three experts. We flew in a couple of them from the outside uh, to help me answer questions. And we had questions turned in for two weeks ahead of time. But the night of the panel, you know, I thought maybe a couple hundred people would show up. 550 people showed up. And there were questions that were texted in during the panel. Over 100 questions. So we got to maybe, I don't know, 22, 23 questions, which means there were a lot of questions that didn't get answered. Where are you going to find the answers to those questions? Well, if you sincerely want an answer, okay, you don't want to continue with whatever you currently believe. You want to know what God has to say about it. We've been recommending seven or eight books that are available. You could purchase them at any one of our five campuses. They're still available today. Get a hold of some resources that will answer your questions. If you're a parent, you know, consider purchasing a book, paying your high school student to read it and discuss it with you. I used to pay my kids 20 bucks to read a good book and talk about it with me. And that was way before inflation set in, all right? So it's got to be worth at least 50 bucks, kids, these days, all right? <laughs> sure, I'll read that book, Dad. <laughs> so resources, safeguards. 
I got a filter on my phone, I got a filter on my laptop, I got a filter on my smart TV, I have no idea what the passwords are for any of those because they're dangerous. My friend who's a sexual addictions counselor says that the porn on cell phones, he said, it's like crack cocaine. That's his analogy. So you got a kid who doesn't have, he's got a cell phone and doesn't have a filter on it? Yeah, safeguard. Safeguards can be protocols too that you put in place. I'm a married guy, so you know, one of my protocols is I don't hang out with women one-on-one over coffee or lunch or whatever, other than my wife uh, or my sister who lives in the area or my two grown daughters. So if you see me with a beautiful woman, it's a member of my family, all right? But, but if I'm going to hang with a, with a woman, it's going to be with a couple other people as, as part of the, the gathering. So I, you know, I don't know what the protocols will look like for you, but what safeguards will you put in place? And then there's an accountability partner. I meet with my accountability partner every other week. At the top of the list of things we check up on is sexual temptations and where we've fallen down and need to get up and need to repent of some things and need to be held accountable. Okay, we, would, we could majorly ruin each other's lives by what we know of each other. See, but it's so good to have someone who could be trusted and someone who, who's gonna follow up. And sometimes it's not a one-on-one relationship, it's a group Okay, we have sexual integrity groups at some of our care nights at a few of our campuses, so check it out online. If you're struggling in an area, want more sexual purity in your life, find yourself in one of those groups. Get yourself an accountability partner. Now, let me hasten to add that I put that fourth application about resources, safeguards, accountability, I put it at the end, why? because it will do you absolutely no good if you're not doing the first three applications. Okay, you're just gonna be trying to push the beach ball under the water and it's gonna keep popping up. You're gonna find ways around your accountability partner. You're gonna lie barefaced to them on occasion unless you're examining your own heart regularly and confessing your sins and the sins behind your sins unless you're enjoying the good gifts that God has given you. You get it? Good. We covered a lot of ground today. Let me pray for you. God, I say let me pray for you, but I mean me too. I just, I pray for every one of us because we live in a sex-crazed culture. And it's only with your help that we can maintain the sort of sexual purity that leads to a wholesome life that's blessed by you where the happiness that we experience is not short-lived and it's not tainted, it's not distorted, it doesn't lead to pain, but it lasts over the long haul. God, I've no doubt that in a crowd this size and with people watching online and gathered across five campuses, there are a lot of us who struggle in this area and I pray that something that was said today would be put into practice in the next 24 hours before the iron grows cold before we come up with all sorts of rationalizations as to why we don't need this, before we get into a busy holiday week and forget that we heard you speak to us on the weekend and we knew that you were driving something home to our hearts. Help us walk in obedience to you and experience the abundant life that Jesus, our Savior and King, promised us. We pray in his name, amen.